Thank you very much. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I think that's the best introduction I've ever been given. Um, and thank you all for coming. I hope I don't pop too much coming close to the microphone. Um, it's a great honour to start my tour in Trinity College, Connecticut. Um, and it's a particular honour to have been invited to read here by Professor Berry, who is one of my favourite poets and someone I admire enormously. I would like to start with, as Elizabeth Bishop once said, my one and only villanelle. <laughs> um, and it's based on a childhood game. You can tell me if you do this in America or not, but here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door and here are the people. Genetics. My father's in my fingers, but my mother's in my palms. I lift them up and look at them with pleasure. I know my parents made me by my hands. They may have been repelled to separate lands, to separate hemispheres, may sleep with other lovers, but in me they touch where fingers link to palms. With nothing left of their togetherness but friends who quarry for their image by a river, at least I know their marriage by my hands. I ship a chapel where a steeple stands. I ship a chapel where a steeple stands, and when I turn it over, my father's by my fingers, my mother's by my palms, demure before a priest reciting psalms. My body is their marriage register. I reenact their wedding with my hands. So take me with you. Take up the skin's demands for mirroring in bodies of the future. I'll bequeath my fingers if you bequeath your palms. We know our parents make us by our hands. I'd like to read a, a found poem, which is just another word for a stolen poem. Um, <laughs> and I stole it from the contents page of the York Mystery Plays. Um, the York Mystery Plays were a series of plays enacted on one day around the city of York in medieval times. And different guilds would be responsible for a different play in the cycle, and it covered the creation right through to Revelation. Um, and what struck me so, uh, so brilliantly from the contents was that they'd obviously tried to match the biblical story with the activity of the guild. Um, so most of this is stolen, and then the last bit is my own. York. The plasterers, the creation. The card makers, the creation of Adam and Eve. The fullers, Adam and Eve in Eden. The armorers, the expulsion. The shipwrights, the building of the ark. The fishers and mariners, the flood. 
the tile thatchers, the nativity. St. Leonard's Hospital, the purification. The vintners, the marriage at Cana. The cappers, the woman taken in adultery. The bakers, the last supper. The cord winners, the agony in the garden and the betrayal. The Boers and Fletchers, Christ before Annas and Caiaphas, the Tapeters and Couchers, the dream of Pilate's wife, <coughs> the Butchers, the death of Christ, the Cooks and Water Letters, the remorse of Judas, the Tailors, the Ascension, the Potters, Pentecost, and episodes in between with a yet more fabulous cohabiting. The wool packers and woolen weavers, the assumption of the virgin, the spuriers and lorimers, Christ and the doctors, the spicers, the annunciation, and because even a singing gash in the stratosphere is redeemable, the fall of man to the repairers of barrels, buckets and tubs. So this next poem is a myth, um, I just made it up, <laughs> it's my own myth, uh, and I imagine that, um, as Kieran mentioned in his introduction, I imagine that a pod of pilot whales swims into Belfast Lock and nobody knows what they mean or what to do. Um, and uh, there are two places mentioned at the very end, Eden and Hollywood. And while these places exist elsewhere, they are also names for small towns on the north and south shore of Belfast Lock. Pilots. It was black as the slick, stunned coast of Kuwait over Belfast Lock when the whales came up. Bar the eyelights of aeroplanes angling in into the airport out of the east, like Venus on a kite string, being reeled to earth. All night they surfaced and swam among the detritus of Sellafield and the panic of Godwits and Redshanks. By morning, we'd counted 50 species Globocephala malina, and Radio Ulster was construing a history. They'd left a sister rotting on a Cornish beach, and then come here to this dim, smoke-throated cistern where the emptying tide leaves a scum of mussel shell and the smell of landfill and drains. To mourn or to warn, day drummed its thumbs on their globular foreheads. Neither due nor quarry nor necessary nor asked for nor understood upon arrival, what did we reckon to dress them in? Nothing would fit. Not the man in oilskin working in the warehouse of a whale from the film of Sir Shackleton's blasted endeavour, as though a hill had opened onto fairy tale measures of blubber and baleen, and this was the money god's recompense. Not the huge blue seen from the sky, its own floating ecosystem furred at the edges with surf, nor the unbridgeable flick of its three-storey tail bidding goodbye to this angular world before barrelling under. 
we remembered a kind of singing, or rather our take on it, some dismal chorus of want and wistfulness resounding around the planet, alarmed and prophetic with all the foresight we lack. Though not one of us heard it from where we stood on the beaches and car parks and cycle paths skirting the water. What had they come for? From Carrickfergus to Helen's Bay, bird watchers with binoculars held sway while the city sat empty. The whales grew frenzied. Children sighed when they dived, then clapped as they rose again, Christ-like and shining from the sea. Though they could have been dying out there, smack bang in the middle of the ferry's trajectory, for all we knew, or attempting to die. These were Newfoundland whales, radically adrift from their feeding grounds, but we took them as a gift, as if our own lost magnificent ship had re-entered the lock, transformed and triumphant to visit us, as if those runaway fires on the spines of the hills had been somehow extinguished. For now, they were here, and there was nothing whatsoever to be said. New islands in the water between Eden and Hollywood. to read the poem um, inspired by William Thackeray's Vanity Fair, uh, which is a novel that I love. Um, and in the novel, uh, there are two female characters, uh, one of whom is brilliant, Becky Sharp, and one of, them, one of whom is very dull and very boring, Amelia Sedley. And uh, Amelia, Amelia's husband, George Osborne, is killed at the Battle of Waterloo two weeks after their wedding, leaving her pregnant. And thereafter, she, she shuts herself up into grief um, and kind of idolises this husband of hers, even though he was a cad from the beginning. And um, his friend is called William Dobbin, and he has been in love with Amelia all his life. And he looks after her for years and protects her and gives her money and helps raise her son. And then he asks her, you know, he declares his love and she says, no, I, I can't possibly, I, I am still in love with my husband. At which point he leaves. And typically, it's only then that Amelia values what she's lost in the figure of William Dobbin. And Thackeray tells us that she goes home and she writes a letter. And the letter gets sent and then he comes back and they get married. But Thackeray never tells us what's in the letter. So I thought I would write the letter. <laughs> Vanity Fair. Dearest William, I could begin by hoping you are well in England, and I do, now that the regiment has returned to Chatham. Or I could begin by telling you that reports of worsening weather here are true, that Georgie thinks you wicked and unkind for leaving him, that your former servants pine, or that father, though no better, is no worse, 
etc. But this is not a weather talk sort of letter. It is after three. The whole house sleeps, even Becky, and I am kept awake six weeks by your crippling absence. An irony, I confess, since for all your years of passionate presence, I failed to cherish you. Now that you're gone, Becky, and you were right about her all along, <laughs> keeps dreadful company, boorish men who jest and drink and flirt, and she isn't in the slightest shocked by any of it. I keep to my room. I have placed the portrait of George face down on the dresser. I have folded the gloves you left in an innermost drawer as though they were a gift. Since you spoke of my incapacity for love, I have come to see how my own fierce widowhood was a shell against the world, a kind of carapace made up of pride, stupidity and cowardice, a stay, if you will, against the kind of attachment such as yours for me deserved. Poor shredded raiment, for if it did not keep me warm, it kept me safe, safe against you and safe against myself. Last year at the opera, it was Dido and Aeneas. I wished to take your hand in a sudden, artless, <coughs> harmless way that would not give you pause, then didn't. I think I must have sensed the charge built up from a decade's loving in your fingers, though there you sat as solid as an anchor and feared that touching it would knock me flat. Now I'm scared I shall die without it. Dear Dobbin, come back. Like everything else we do in our mingled, muddy lives, this letter is overdue. Forgive me if my love arrives belatedly, but there is a ship can get you here by Friday and come all the rain in Christendom. I shall be waiting by the viewing platform. Dearest William, put out to sea. Yours, Amelia Sedley. I have an older brother, um, so eight, 18 months older, not that much older, but um, therefore I knew the facts of life quite early on, because um, he told me, uh, and so while I understood how babies were made, I didn't conceive for a second that I would be a willing participant in that procedure. <laughs> Apocrypha. When I was 10 and convinced I would never have children, simply by keeping my underwear on at night time, I was disarmed by the history of Mary Ann Sexton, mother, camp follower, picker of pockets, stower of teeth, and of how her womb was pierced by a bullet still wet from the testicle of a roundhead lieutenant at the Battle of Marston Moor. 
as though the slaughter itself required climax and sought out the unlikeliest agents, or a new king pined to be born. This was as improbable a conception as the physical laws of the earth and all the revolving planets could allow. What hope was underwear now? <laughs> if destiny hovered with green wings and a stained indefatigable purpose over my bedspread, I too would be done for. And I was done for twice. I was done for twice. Okay. I keep, I keep talking in the voice of people who aren't me. Um, I, I find that much more fun and uh, a kind of a relief not to be myself. Um, and I have never experienced an ice storm. I don't know if anybody in the room has experienced an ice storm. It's, it's weather which is completely alien to Ireland, thank God. Um, but I was listening to Radio 4 one day in my kitchen and there was a man on the radio talking about the great ice storm that hit uh, northern Vermont, north New York State and Quebec in Canada. Um, and while most ice storms, I believe, last for a few hours, this one lasted for a week. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just amazing to hear him talk about the ice storm. So I thought I would be him and uh, explain my experience of the ice storm um, and I, I wrote a poem which uh, in terms of the line um, contracts and expands as it goes down the page rather like ice and, and the idea of the sounds of the poem was that it would be ice-like. Ice. They've come and gone before Two hours or so of a fine rain freezing on impact and what passes for the world in West Quebec. Woods, sugarbush, pylons, sheep has spangled itself in ice. Branches bend and snap and forests for years afterwards hold their grieving centres bare where pin oak, Siberian elm, <coughs> common hackberry and Bradford pear perform a shorn prostration and are unable to right themselves. They teach the weeping willow how it's done. Sometimes frost's broken dome of heaven is high storms end. Just that, a shattering in the sunlight of the million crystal filaments that fell and hung on everything, as though absence of breath had caused the general lock-in and simple breath was all we ever needed to unsleeve the present and make it real again. Monday, January 5th. We, we wake to a bluish light lasering through the window, a white display on the radio and the racket of gunshot. The house is cold and all around the trees are coming down. First the crack at the stem of the weight sore trunk, then a clinking magnified, a china shop upending <coughs> in an earthquake as the branches rattle and snag. When the whole tree hits, a volley of shots goes up and its burden of glass explodes. 
this 10, 20, 50 times until we lose each crash to the cacophony of the week-long storm. I still remember you standing in your housecoat that first night and how your face was lit by the transformer shorting out outside. We didn't know the blackout ended five states wide or that the footprint of the ice storm could be seen from space. The sheep were dead. The summary execution of every maple within earshot finally stopped at dawn on the penultimate day. The house still stood astonished, the one upright among a litter of horizontals. And while it rained and froze, rained and froze, a quiet inside the rainfall began to spread itself abroad, all targets <coughs> down, all debris blown asunder. You begged me to check the sheep. I knew before I reached them two hours later the outline of my person hanging frozen in the air that none of them had survived. The silence was ubiquitous and pure as star silence. So all I had to offer as I slipped and slithered homewards was an outbuilding of kneeling, petrified sheep locked to their spots like pieces in a snow <coughs> queen's game of chess. Frost flowers, bearded trees, ghosts of some sudden deleterious fungus ballooning out of the brushwood, one spectacular rose bowl mourning the previous fall, the lavish sexual freeze of long-stemmed plants whose ensuing ersatz petals splinter when touched. Midnight, January 9th, the jettisoned excess of the Mississippi Delta had punished us enough. Rain reverted to gas. Before the burials, before the muddy thaw, before the gathering mass of melted ice flooded the south, before the army and the extraction of what was felled from what was left, we stood in our living room window and watched a tiny moon and a tatter of stars high up in the atmosphere and kissed as two will kiss through sheets dipped in disinfectant and everything between us flew apart. When I was about four, we lived in, in a new town called Craigavon, which was a kind of radical social experiment. So um, all these houses were planned, and uh, it was right in the middle of the countryside in County Armagh, and um, the troubles were raging in Belfast. Well, they were raging all over, but uh, very very problematic in Belfast. So they had this idea that they would pay people £500 to move to this new town in the middle of nowhere um, where there weren't very many amenities and people didn't have cars and there was no bus services and things like that. So it became pretty trashed. Um, and uh, in fact, the house where I lived was, was bulldozed uh, because the area just, it just grew completely out of control. Um, but there was this strange juxtaposition between living on a housing state in the middle of, of the rural countryside. And when I was about four, a boy, and I never knew who he was, 
had been out hunting and he brought our family a hare and um, I'd never seen a hare before and my dad hung the hare um, for three days and so this is a poem about that hare. <coughs> Sorry. And it looks like this because um, I wanted the poem to have a plumb line to, to get that hanging weight. It's very hard to do. It also rhymes, so that was very hard to do. It took me weeks and weeks and weeks to write this poem. The Hanging Hair. Once a boy with a bare brown chest <coughs> brought a hair to our back door. It was heavy summer. The alleyway he walked along held August's bin-lid stink and stupor. He wouldn't stay, declared the hair a present from his father. My brother fetched a length of string, tied it by its feet, then watched as our mother fastened it carefully to the iron banister where it spun like the spiralling seed of a sycamore losing momentum. Soon enough, it hung there, motionless, impaled upon its own frozen direct line of perfect martyrdom, its eye an abyss, its foxglove fur unblemished bar the torn and matted abdomen where the shot went in. I could have sat at the foot of the flight of stairs for ours to get the measure of it. Its ear tips dipped in black against the almost white of its ears interiors, if my mother had allowed it. She banished me outside where the afternoon lay festering. And yet it almost seemed as if the sunken playground hacked out stumps of trees and blackened mattresses where a fire had been were wiped out by this gift, this legacy of unimpeded air, of whitethorn quartered fields for miles around, of granular traces still on the skin from a swimmable river, of plover's eggs, the calyx wheels of larkspur, of spaces where a hare might flourish. Like a sideshow hawker with a star exhibit, I rounded in the street before my father skinned and washed and jugged the hair in blood and butter. Look, I said, to a ring of children and pointed. It's gorgeous. Baltimore is in the news for terrible reasons. So I have a poem called Baltimore. I have never been to Baltimore, um, but I have watched The Wire, which has made Baltimore famous around the world. Baltimore. In other noises, I hear my children crying. In older children playing on the street past bedtime, their voices buoyant in a staggered light. 
or in the baby next door, wakeful and petulant through two thin walls, or in the constant freakish pitch of West Side Baltimore on the wire, its sirens and rapid gunfire, its beleaguered cops haranguing kids as young as six for propping up the dealers on the corners, their swagger and spitfire speech or in the white space between radio stations when no voice comes at all and the crackling static might be swallowing whole a child's small call for help. Even in silence itself, its material loops and folds enveloping a ghost cry, one I've made up but heard, that has me climbing the stairs, pausing in the hall, listening, listening hard to, at most, rhythmical breathing, but more often than not, to nothing. The air of the landing thick with something missed. Dust motes, the overhang of blankets, a ship on the lock through the window, infant sleep. So I'm gonna read a poem called Jigsaw and then I'm gonna read a poem called Puzzle. And uh, the poem called Jigsaw is a poem about the first ever jigsaw, which was invented um, in the 18th century. And it was a map of Europe divided up into its <coughs> kingdoms or its countries. Um, and I imagine that this was given as a present to the royal family's children at the end of the 18th century. So after the American War of Independence and after the Maoris in New Zealand, had fought such a successful war against the British that they made them draw up a treaty, which no other colonised people managed to do. Um, the New Zealand, uh, sorry, the Maori word for New Zealand is Aotearoa, and it means land of the long white cloud. I have to negotiate this new book because <laughs> it's got so many pages. Okay. Jigsaw. The royal children have been sent a gift, a map of Europe from 1766, complete with longitude, painted onto wood, like any other map in brown and green and red, but then disfigured, cut up into parts, a disassembly of tiny courts strewn across the table. There is a key to help the children slot country by country, the known traversable world in place. Little Tartary, Swedish Lapland, France, the government of Archangel. The sea has been divided into <coughs> squares, crudely, as though the cast iron sides of nations still applied, but with more attention to geometry. While the engraver's signature a circle, his name, a folded flower, has been deftly sewn in half. If successful, the three young princes and the oldest girl, this is not, after all, a lesson in diplomacy, so she can play too, will, ironically, undo the puzzle's title and its claim. Europe, divided in its kingdoms, shall be Europe reconfigured whole. They start in the top left corner with the scale, then fill the other corners in. Part of Africa, 
a scroll, the blank of simply Asia, rolling off to hordes and steppes and snow beyond the boundary. Outlines follow, aided by exquisite lettering. The frozen ocean solidifies across the map's ceiling. And so the royal children spend an hour staring and exclaiming, clicking together what joy, the angled buttress of a continent, their own unlikely island on a slant by its farthest edge, and in their trance ignore what will no longer fit. Aotearoa, America. And from Jigsaw to Puzzle. So Puzzle was inspired by a book that my friend gave me called uh, The Moscow Puzzle Book. And The Moscow Puzzle Book was a book of very difficult <coughs> mental math problems published in the Soviet Union in the early 1950s. Um, and this, it's been translated into English and published by Penguin. It's probably out of print now. But it was fascinating to read this because not only was it amazing how difficult the maths problems were, um, but while they gave you a problem, they simultaneously told you how to be an ideal Soviet citizen. So um, they're full of, of uh, grand ideological claims and, and working heroes of the Soviet Union and their practices. Um, puzzle. Vidya pledges his brigade of pioneers will plant half as many fruit trees as the other pioneers. Kiryusha pledges his brigade, the best of the detachment, will match the trees of all brigades together, including Vitya's. Their brigades work the last shift simultaneously. The preceding brigades of the detachment plant 40 trees. Both pledges are fulfilled exactly. How many trees does the whole detachment plant? Answer, a kind of Latin, finished and intricate, or a box of glass plate negatives from 1887 unearthed by accident of Newcastle cloth market. The oceanic white-tip shark, ectoplasm, Natasha Ivanova on her collective farm, working out the most efficient way to harvest cotton. The actual answer is 136. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just read a few more. Um, I turned uh, 43 on Friday, last Friday, just before I came which was great and not traumatic at all. Um, but turning 40 was, well, coming up to turning 40 was very traumatic. I think 39 is the worst year of anybody's life, There's this thing about turning 40. Once I turned 40, I was fine, but I was a bit freaked out about 40 advancing towards me. So um, this is a poem about that. Um, in ancient Egypt, uh, they had this idea of the afterlife being very much like this world. Um, so you would be, what they feared most about the afterlife um, was having to do lots of work. Um, 
So they invented a custom of, of carving these, these little Shabti figurines and they would be carved with baskets and hoes um, and all farm working implements and they put them in their coffins so that the gods would favourably make the carvings do the work in the afterlife rather than then. The house of Osiris in the field of reeds. I'm turning 40, not on my birthday, still as I write six weeks away, but over months. It's like a migraine, that sludgy disconnectedness starting in the brain, hours before the hammering. I've forgotten my name and my husband's name in the run-up to the full-scale meltdown. All through last winter, each day made to bear the pressure of impending loss. Soon it will no longer be like this. The lean girls picnicking in the park, their whole of charity shop dresses at their feet, listening to the Smiths, have long since picked themselves up and vanished down the tall grass corridor of rooks and smoke. I can no longer remember their faces or what the sky over Dublin inscribed on my skin the year I just left home, or even the impact of first-time proper sex, of being unwrapped. But turning 40 banishes my younger self to a separate outhouse, somewhere stony and impassable, hot, fly-infested, like the city of Tetu on the Nile, which became the other world for all of Egypt, and I cannot get across. Death was so much closer then, of course. I'd be dead already, or at least a grandmother. If rich, I'd have my orders pre-prepared for the sarcophagus maker, the shabti carver, the weaver of the shroud. I'd have selected the spells for my coffin lid, the amulets required to survive the guarded entrances of the afterlife, the tricky test with hearts and feathers. O oh, exiled one, so you may escape the heat and torpor of that barren place and pass instead to the field of reeds and do no work there. Discover by your grave cloths a replica of yourself in turquoise veins fashioned with a basket. Here, it says, I'll do it. Take me. So back to Belfast Lock, um, we live in a house now that overlooks it and my son is um, an insomniac uh, and he would, li he would lie awake for a long, long time before falling asleep and um, I think he was about six when I wrote this poem about him but um, it was August and it's still incredibly bright in Ireland in August. Um, and uh, he, he told me that he hadn't gone to sleep yet because he was waiting for the lighthouse on the Copeland Islands across to come on. And I imagined the lighthouse and my son having a, a private conversation. Lighthouse. My son's awake at 10, stretched out along his bunk beneath the ceiling, wired and watchful. The end of August. 
Already the high-flung daylight sky of our northern solstice dulls earlier and earlier to a clouded bowl. His star of David lamp and plastic moon have turned the dusk to dark outside his room. Across the lock where ferries <coughs> venture blithely and once a cruise ship massive as a palace inched its brilliant decks to open sea. A lighthouse starts its own night-long address in fractured signalling. It blinks and bats the swing ball of its beam, then stands to catch, then hurls it out again beyond its <coughs> parallax. He counts each creamy loop inside his head, each well-black interval, and thinks it just for him this gesture from a world that can't be entered. The two of them, partly curtained, partly seen, upheld in a sort of boy talk conversation no one else can hear. That private place, it answers, with birds and slatted windows. I've been there. And I'll finish, I'll read one more poem. Thanks very much for listening. You've been a fantastic audience. Thank you for your attention. Um, thanks again to Kieran for the invitation and the lovely introduction. I'm going to finish with what Kieran's introduction started with. So what do you get or what connects childbirth and a film by David, a film starring David Niven and the Rally Bicycle Factory in Nottingham. Um, I was going into labour with my son, um, my first child, and uh, it takes <coughs> ages. <laughs> and um, I turned on the television just to pass some time, and this extraordinary film was on TV. Um, and it was filmed in this world, which was in glorious Technicolor, and an afterworld, which was in black and white. And the afterworld was ruled by women. And um, David Niven, uh, yeah, I'll not tell you more because it's in the poem, but yeah, um, David Niven's returning from a, a bombing operation, bombing Germany. Um, so there's a, there's a fantastic magical marble escalator that connects this Technicolor world with this black and white afterlife in the movie. And I was about to bring a child from one world into another world, so it felt incredibly apt. And I, I wrote it many years later, but I didn't feel I could let it go. A Matter of Life and Death. On the afternoon I'm going into labour so haltingly it's still easy to bend and breathe, bend and breathe. Each time the erratic clamp sets its grip about my pelvis, then releases. I take a nap, eat lunch, and while you pen a letter to our impending offspring, explaining who we are, what there is on offer in the house we don't yet know we'll leave, to be handed over on his 18th birthday like a key to the domain, sit front to back on an upright chair in the living room and switch on the television. World War II. David Niven is faltering after a bombing op in a shot-up plane. Conservative by nature, labour by conviction. He quotes Sir Walter Raleigh. Oh, give me my scallop shell of quiet, my staff of faith to walk upon. 
while a terrified American radio girl listens in. It's all fire and ravenous engine noise. He can't land because the fuselage is damaged and he hasn't a parachute. Then, because he'd rather fall than fry, he bails out anyway, a blip on the screen vanishing into cloud cover. The girl hides her face in her hands. The baby drops a fraction of an inch and the next contraction hurts. I know I'm at the gentlest end of an attenuated scale of pain relief, climbing the stairs, a bath, two aspirin, tapering down as the hours roll on and we relocate to hospital, to gas and air, pethidine, a needle in the spine, and go out to walk the sunny verges of our cul-de-sac like a wind-up fat man toy, tottering every five minutes or so into a bow. Nobody's home. The bins are still out on the road after this morning's pickup. The light is slant and filled with running gold. Back inside, the film has switched to Technicolor monochrome, an anachronistic afterlife in grey in which dead airmen sign in under name and rank. The Yanks smack gum and swagger isn't this swell, and a legion of otherworldly women with hair rolled high as dunes hand out enormous plaster wings to the just deceased. The dead are invoiced for, like battleships or teapots. Their names on the list ticked off as they swing through each allotted doorway, clean and whole and orderly, the incomprehensible machinery of life and death, a question of books that balance. And there's this sudden tug inside, rigging, straining taut and singing, and I cry out for the first time, and in you come to coax and soothe, as though I'm doing something, running a marathon, climbing a mountain, instead of being forced back down into my seat by some psychopathic schoolmarm over and over again, stay. And I think of my granny and her 46 hours of agony, shifting my mother from one world to the next, and how that birth cut short her happiness at the Rally Bicycle Factory in Nottingham, where her youth was spent in secret war work, typing up invoices. Back in heaven, there's about as much commotion as there's been in a million years. A slight shake of the head by the woman in charge, a sigh, because David Niven, who should have arrived but hasn't, landed on a beach and, how, survived, met the American radio operator as she cycled home after the night shift and fell in love. He must be sent for. Down below, they're already looking post-coital, picnicking in civvies on a homespun tartan rug in a technicolour rose garden. I'm not supposed to show up at the hospital for hours, or not until the cervix has done its slow, industrial, cranking wide, enough to be marked by a thumb span. And the problem is, I don't know what this means, or how to tell, or how much worse the pain is going to get. Answer, a lot. And so the afternoon grows hot and narrow and you abandon your confessions altogether and the botch clock paradise with seven hands across its face ticks on the wall. I've seen it many times, said my granny. When a new life comes into a family, an old life goes out. 
as though there were checks and balances, birth weighted against death like a tidy invoice and a precise amount of room allotted the living. Before we inch upstairs to the bathroom to test what sweet relief is granted after all by a bath and lavender oil, I catch sight of a magical marble escalator, the original stairway to heaven, with David Niven captive on its steps being hauled away to the sound of a clanking bell from his radiant girlfriend. And I imagine my granny, who died three weeks ago on a hospital ward in Chesterfield, making room as she herself predicted, not dumb and stricken and hollowed out with cancer, but young, glamorous, childless, free, in her 1940 shoes and sticky lipstick, clicking about the office of new arrivals as though she owns it, flicking open the leather-bound ledger and asking him to sign.